chilling, isn't it, my friend? Staring into the sockets of a white hood through the glass of a display exhibit. To think, someone once wore that hood, as well as the values it stood for. I'll admit, and this is a rare showing of my personal feelings on a subject, I never really could wrap my head around the concept of racism. The idea that you think someone is lesser than simply based on evolutionary traits of groups of people who evolved in certain regions of the world, well, when you word it that way, it just seems silly and primitive. Then again, the human mind is primitive. Our first reaction is to fear things we don't understand, and in many cases, we lash out violently. If you haven't figured it out by now, today we are finally going to be going through the odd and terrifying history of the Ku Klux Klan, as we hinted about all the way back in the first episode of the show. I say odd because, unlike the earlier days of the South, when the KKK finally reached Oregon, they weren't the same as their predecessors. Come, my friend, sit down here and I shall tell you all about it. The Klan's history dates back to just after the Civil War in 1966. It was started as a social club by Confederate veterans in Pulaski, Tennessee, apparently deriving the name Ku Klux from the Greek word kyklos, which translates to circle, and the Klan part was added later on. I can't say if it was always meant to be what it turned into, but as history shows, that detail doesn't really matter. The organization quickly became the vehicle for white supremacy, and the Confederates were desperate to regain the ground they had lost. Similar groups, such as the Knights of the White Camellia from Louisiana, also emerged, though none were more prominent than the Klan, headed by Cavalry General Nathan Bedford Forrest, who was believed to be the very first Grand Wizard or Grand Dragon, as some sources conflict with each other on the title. I want to give a quick observation to the names of some of these rankings within the organization. Some of them make sense for their Greek ties to Kyklos, like Grand Titan and Grand Cyclops. But of course, there are other names like Grand Wizard and Grand Dragon, and I can't help but chuckle a little at not only their mixed theming split between Greek mythology and D&D fantasy, but just how intense these names are, showing just how desperate their need to feel superior was. Of course, desperation breeds violent intent, and as we all know, that's exactly what the KKK spent years doing. They would whip and kill freed black people, as well as anyone else who would support them. They would conduct nighttime raids, set fires, and wear the iconic robes and hoods to conceal their identity and to intimidate. Of course, they didn't always get their way as some towns were so fed up with the violence that they would wage all-out war with Klansmen, including members of occupying federal troops. One of these was the Kirk-Holden War of 1870, although to say it was an actual war might be a bit of an overstatement. It was more of a police operation against the Klansmen who were murdering and intimidating freed slaves and members of the Republican Party in North Carolina, to prevent them from voting in the aftermath of the Civil War. War or not, the whole matter might as well have been one, 
especially after the murder of a Republican senator named John W. Stevens in Caswell County and a black town commissioner in Alamance County named Wyatt Outlaw. By then, Governor William H. Holden had enough of the Klan doing as they pleased and declared both areas to be in a state of insurrection under the 14th Amendment. Now, once again, I try my best to keep my own personal feelings out of the narrative, or at least I try not to bring up more current and controversial events. However, sometimes the plot demands it, especially seeing as how the 14th Amendment is being used once again. So, what exactly is the 14th Amendment? Passed by the Senate on June 8, 1866, and ratified two years later on July 9, 1868, the 14th Amendment granted citizenship to all persons who either were born in the United States or obtained their citizenship. This included formerly enslaved people, and provided all citizens with equal protection and extended the provisions of the Bill of Rights to the states. The amendment authorized the government to punish states that abridged citizens' right to vote by proportionately reducing their representation in Congress. It banned those who engaged in insurrection against the United States from holding any civil, military, or elected office without the approval of two-thirds of the House and Senate. Something important to point out is that a person doesn't even have to be convicted of insurrection. Even if you're just harboring an individual, you can be counted as engaging in insurrection. And that might be severe to our modern senses, but you have to understand that these laws were created after the most bloodiest war in American history. 600,000 soldiers on both sides of the conflict were killed, more than World War I and II combined. The amendment also prohibited former Confederate states from repaying war debts and compensating former slave owners for the emancipation of their enslaved people. And to top it all off, it granted Congress the power to enforce this amendment, a provision that led to the passage of other landmark legislation in the 20th century, including the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965. Congress required former Confederate states to ratify the 14th Amendment as a condition of regaining federal representation. Holden's reaction was hesitant at first. He feared political backlash, but ultimately, after several meetings with other politicians on what the next steps should be, a militia was formed and led by George Washington Kirk to bring the Klan to justice by any means necessary. There are many details of the conflict that I can't possibly fit in the opening of this episode, but when the dust finally settled, Kirk fled to Washington, D.C., Holden was impeached, and the Klan activity in Alamance and Caswell County ceased. Eventually, by 1869, Forrest himself ordered the Klan to be disbanded, largely because of the organization's excessive violence. Some branches, as we just talked about, remained, and over the course of about a decade, the government fought these branches both on a military front as well as on the Senate floor. One of these was the Ku Klux Klan Act, officially known as a act to enforce the provisions of the 14th Amendment to the Constitution of the United States, and for other purposes, which basically meant that the Klan were traitors to the Constitution. 
By 1882, the Supreme Court ruled that the act was unconstitutional, but by then the Klan had disappeared. Why? Because by then the Klan had achieved what it set out to do, re-establish white supremacy throughout the South. There was no need for them anymore. Of course, as we know by now, history is very complicated, and while the Klan had been disbanded for several decades, it wouldn't stay gone forever. I'm Marcus Axford, and welcome to Oregon. Humans have always been complex creatures, even people with the most black and white morals and viewpoints. As we have talked about before with Oswald West, people can do great things and also have, at minimum, very questionable opinions. Oswald may have been the one to save the Oregon coast from privatization, but he also favored the eugenics movement. Such was the case of David Wark Griffith, also known as D.W. Griffith, who, along with legends Mary Pickford, Charlie Chaplin, and Douglas Fairbanks, founded the studio United Artists in 1919 with the goal of enabling actors and directors to make films on their own terms, as opposed to the terms of commercial studios. This was a landmark move. Established Hollywood producers and distributors were tightening their control over actor salaries and creative decisions, something that many actors and actresses were getting tired of, and this provided a way to mitigate that. Unfortunately, though, as much good as Griffith did, it wouldn't outweigh the sins of his past. You see, Griffith is known primarily for directing the 1915 film The Birth of a Nation, adapted from a book called The Klansman by Thomas Dixon Jr., who was notably classmates and friends with President Woodrow Wilson. The film became one of the most financially successful movies of all time, landing its investors enormous profits, but it also attracted much controversy for its degrading portrayals of African Americans, its glorification of the KKK, and support for the Confederacy and its overall overtly racist viewpoint. The film led to riots in several major cities all over the United States, and ultimately the rise of a new Ku Klux Klan. It's no surprise that this film had a white supremacist message. After all, Griffith's father was a Confederate Army colonel in the Civil War, so Griffith felt there was nothing wrong with his viewpoints on the subject. You might be wondering why legends like Chaplin would ever associate themselves with Griffith, especially since they had such opposing personalities. After all, Chaplin was investigated by the FBI between 1946 and 1953 for being a communist. Like I said, people are complex, and so is history. We can't look at these events with a modern lens. There could be any number of reasons why people chose to found United Artists with Griffith, although I suspect it was because it was a necessary evil to achieve the goals that would benefit many hardworking entertainers. It's worth noting that Griffith wasn't with the company very long, leaving in 1924 to pursue other ventures, although he would never again achieve the level of success he had early on in his career, specifically with Birth of a Nation and the follow-up to its criticism, 
intolerance. And no, it wasn't made as an apology. If anything, Griffith dug his heels in further. United Artists remained a company all the way up until its dissolvement in 2019. Today, it remains a name only. I mentioned that Birth of a Nation led to the rise of a new Ku Klux Klan, and indeed this was the case. If Griffith's movie was the torch to bring white supremacy back into the eyes of the nation, then William Joseph Simmons was the cross upon which the fire would ignite. While recovering from a car accident, the local preacher in Georgia followed the birth of a nation's nationwide success. Just ten days before the film premiered, Simmons gathered a group and climbed Stone Mountain outside Atlanta to burn a large cross, a ritual that was done in the movie, but one that was never actually carried out by the original clan. It's of course safe to say that the movie greatly exaggerated a lot of the details about the past. Word spread about the burning icon, and Simmons took out a newspaper ad about the KKK's revival that ran alongside an announcement about the Birth of a Nation premiere. On opening night, Simmons and fellow Klansmen, dressed in white sheets and Confederate uniforms, paraded down Peachtree Street with hooded horses, firing rifle salutes in front of the theater. The effect was powerful, and screenings in more cities echoed the display including movie ushers donning white sheets. Klansmen also handed out KKK literature before and after screenings. I can only imagine that the scene was horror beyond imagining, a true equivalent to the modern-day trope of an ancient evil awakens. Only this time, it wasn't going to go away, and people like President Woodrow Wilson saw to that, erasing decades of progress made by African Americans and their supporters. And in the time of the Roaring Twenties, the Klan's numbers would swell to millions across the nation. I know we are already halfway through the episode and still haven't gotten to Oregon's history with the Klan, but it's important to understand why exactly the Klan made an appearance in Oregon at all, especially when at the time there were hardly any colored people in the state. While it's true that the Klan mostly targeted African Americans, they weren't the only ones to face the White Hoods. Unless you were a white Protestant middle-class man, you were most likely a target. Immigrants, Catholics, Jews, liberals, and pretty much anyone who stood against them were hit with violence and threats, condemned from attempting to attain wealth, social status, and political power. Most of these true ideologies were mostly held by the clan of old. In truth, the new clan was less about white supremacy and more about financial supremacy. It was a large and perverted pyramid scheme, stoking the fires of existing hate to their own benefit. You see, if you wanted to be an official member of the clan, you had to pay a membership fee of $10. A significant chunk, as back then the average individual made $3,000 per year in income. Not to mention the organization required members to buy robes and regalia from the official clan catalog, and regularly contribute to clan causes such as plans for a 10-story office building in downtown Portland. 
There were many positions within the organization, and while some were probably more profitable than others, especially as you went higher up in the ranks, it was easy to amass a lot of wealth as a recruiter, also called a Klegel. Because in addition to getting a commission off of membership fees, Klegels were also paid $200 an hour. Of course, there was probably competition within the South, but the further west you went, the more wide open the market. And in early 1921, that's exactly what one man made his mission to do. In January of 1921, Luther Powell, a salesman from Louisiana, stepped onto the train platform at Medford from California and immediately began spending days interviewing community leaders, including pastors, police, and fraternal organizations. Being a salesman, Powell knew exactly where he needed to start if he wanted to make his memberships, of which he would be getting a staggering 40% profit from, and that first step was to be finding out what worried prominent white locals the most. And the answers would be Catholics, the general lawlessness of the lower classes, and bootlegging, which, remember, prohibition was going on at the time. In fact, it had been exactly one year since the Volstead Act was put into law. It didn't take long for Powell to rile up support. 25 men immediately signed up. Within weeks, the first KKK chapter in the state was established, and one of its first activities included hooded men delivering a cash donation to a local church. In the coming months, public ceremonies and parades would follow, and the messages were made very clear. White power had come to Oregon, and it had no intention of going anywhere. Powell eventually started making his way across the state, applying the same tactic he had in the previous towns and cities. It likely wasn't entirely as easy as campaigning in the South, where there was a greater presence of freed slaves and African Americans. At the time, Oregon was 97% white, and it's hard to build an anti-black platform when there were hardly any black people to oppress. Thanks to laws Oregon already had on the books, both black slaves and freed African Americans were prohibited from living in the state. Which is odd when you really think about it. Laws that were clearly racist also prevented the ownership of slaves in the state. And this was true. Oregonians of the time may not have liked living next to an African American, but they also generally did not believe in slavery either, unless it was used as a punishment although what that meant is largely unclear. Still, Powell found a way, by continuously going after mostly people of Catholic denomination, as well as Chinese immigrants who did a lot of the work in building Oregon's infrastructure. You could almost say that the West Coast had its own version of Southern slavery, as railroads were built on the backs of Chinese workers. While they weren't slaves per se, Chinese individuals couldn't own land, attend school, marry interracially, and much of the other restrictions that African Americans faced in the South. As targeting as this new clan was, which by the way was named the Knights of the Ku Klux Klan, it was also very smart. Presenting itself as an American values first kind of entity, and insisted that they were not an anti-anything organization. 
Powell himself said in a meeting with Portland officials, quote, Ours is not an anti-organization of any kind. We are not anti-Japanese or anti-Jew or anti-Black or anti-Catholic or anti-anything else. It is simply that the United States has not any American secret fraternal organization and we're going to supply that need. The fact that we limit membership does not mean anything against the people we bar. They have their own organizations, membership in which is barred to us. In addition to sentiments like this, the Klan as a whole would make donations to things like African Methodist churches in order to offset their violent episodes. What were those violent episodes, you ask? Well, in the case of Oregon, as far as I can tell, no Klansman ever actually killed anyone. Hard to make money when communities start to fear you. But they did do a number of necktie or false hangings in which a person was strung up for a short amount of time and let go. Not enough to kill someone, but plenty enough to make a point. And that point was, you're not welcome here. Powell led the early recruitment in Eugene before it was taken over by exalted Cyclops Frederick S. Dunn, who was employed at the University of Oregon as department head of Latin studies. Luckily, the University of Oregon as a whole would not submit to the wills of the Klan. Many of the students, faculty, graduates, and administration threw down a strong opposition to the Klan, although it still had members on campus. As many as 80 members already existed by the time the local paper announced the Klan's arrival and their vocal opposition to things like prostitution and alcoholism, as well as their stance against Catholics, was felt across the city. That last one, by the way, both directly and indirectly ousted teachers of the university, as well as local leaders, such as Mayor Charles O. Peterson, Chief of Police Chris Christensen, and City Attorney Orla H. Foster. This would be how the Klan would begin to attain ultimate power in the state. Not through force, although there was plenty of that too, but through politics. In November 1922, voters elected Klan favorite Walter Pierce as Oregon's new governor and passed a Klan-supported compulsory school bill. The bill aimed to shut down Catholic academies and other private schools, but thankfully the U.S. Supreme Court rejected the law before it could take effect. However, other Klan-backed legislation stayed on the books for years, including the Alien Land Act, which was originally adopted by other states, including California and Washington, who had their own alien laws passed in 1920 and 1921, respectively. The Alien Land Act was targeted at immigrants, restricting their rights to own land in the United States. More specifically, it was targeted at Asian immigrants, right down to the detail that even their U.S.-born children couldn't help them. And of course, this escalated into World War II when the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. The Klan was gaining power beyond imagining. Much of the states supported them, or at the very least voted with them because they didn't like the opposition. They didn't have full control yet, though. There were still two main players that stood strong against the Klan in office before November of 1922, and that was the state's Republican governor, Ben Alcott, who was a very close friend of political opposite Oswald West and was an outspoken opponent of the Klan. 
He knew the stand he was taking would probably cost him the election, but he also knew that letting a secret society of anonymous xenophobic vigilantes take over the state government would be catastrophic, and he dug his heels in and began preparing for the fight to come. The other man to oppose the Klan was Congressman Clifton Nesmith MacArthur, grandson of legendary pioneer James Nesmith, who was a judge and a politician of many hats, including state senator as well as being a resident of my home of Polk County, Rickrial to be precise. Both men won the renomination, but when the general elections took place, the Klan got wise and just shifted their entire backing to the opponent and unfortunately, they were no match and lost. Alcott left the state for a time, and Walter Pierce took over. It looked as if Oregon was well and truly under Klan control. History, as we know, holds plenty of lessons, mainly that the good guys almost always win eventually, and that absolute power corrupts absolutely. And while the clan of old may have had something to fight for, this new clan did not. And eventually, all that money and power would bring the whole thing crashing down. You see, while Powell had led the charge across the state with the message that they were there to uphold and protect American values, mainly keeping society clean of ethnic and religious impurities, they really didn't understand the main reason why people of the state found the clan's presence so appealing. Protestantism had a lot to say about things like cheating, stealing, gambling, drinking, and overall degeneracy, and Protestants thought that the Klan was there to save them from all that. After all, isn't that why they pledged to cleanse the corruption from the government? It seems that Klan leadership truly had their wires crossed, and they were about to find that out the hard way. When legislation was back in session at the beginning of 1923, Klan-placed politicians got right to work on various anti-Catholic and anti-Japanese laws and bills, such as the banning of religious attire in schools, which meant nuns who at the time often served as school teachers of both private and public schools couldn't adorn themselves in their traditional garb, as well as forcing students to go to public schools. At the time, most if not all private schools were owned by the Catholic Church, and thus the bill would attempt to force the church right out of education. Other plans included banning Columbus Day, banning sacramental wine, and taxing Catholic Church properties. Laws were aimed at the Japanese, whose population only made up 0.6% of the state's population, and even less actually owned land. But the Klan, specifically one legislator with the ironic name Kaspar K. Cooley, and yes, that is spelled with all Ks, said that the Japanese were acquiring too much land. Oregonians were beginning to become fed up with the immoral behavior that the Klan had promised to wipe out. In fact, they were becoming more corrupt than the traditional government. The final tipping point came in 1924, Stories of corruption were coming out, including that of Grand Dragon Fred Gifford using Klan funds for his own personal gain. The greatest scandal by far was the 1924 bidding process for the replacement of the Burnside Bridge, which ended with a suspicious winning bid, and the public would later learn that the 1924 contract was given for 
half a million dollars more than the lowest bid, which, by the way, is almost $7 million today. Having moved the bridge location to profit by selling their land, three Multnomah County commissioners, handpicked by the Klan, mind you, were recalled as a result of the scandal, and a new engineering company assumed control of the project. The KKK had backed the commissioners and enabled their system of kickbacks and grafts, and the ensuing scandal removed much of their clout, just in time for the next election. By the end of the Roaring Twenties, the Klan in Oregon was gone. Nothing more than a bad memory. Although, a third Klan would rise in the 50s and 60s against the Civil Rights Movement. And, even today, we still see its resurgence. But, with modern technology and progressive minds, these groups are merely fighting the inevitable. Because in the end, hate never wins. The Rotten Bridge Scandal of 1924, as it was known, had cost the Klan everything they had. But greed and shortcutting tends to do that in a lot of projects. In fact, Oregon is littered with bridges of various sizes and designs, and all of them seemingly have their own history of costly disasters. But that is a story for another time. Can I be honest with you, my friend? Until my 20s, I never really saw racial diversity. Not in a bad way, mind you. I just saw people as, well, people. I suppose that's the innocence of a child. I valued them for their minds and personalities, not their sex or skin tone. And I still try to hold on to those perspectives to this day. Although, thanks to social media constantly shoving things in our faces, it's hard not to see diversity. Sometimes that's not a bad thing, and other times it can be very distracting. Something I never liked is people putting each other down over the sentiment of having diversity in their friend group. The whole, I have a black friend mantra. And why not? Isn't that the whole point of making relationships with people of all walks of life? To gain perspective and wisdom? No, you shouldn't use it as an excuse for bad behavior, but I enjoy sitting and listening to the struggles and diversities of other people's lives, the things they go through, the things they have to face, the challenges they must overcome, and learning from their experiences. I've even asked my own wife, who is Hispanic, about her own experiences. Well, I suppose that's enough heavy-handed conversation for one day. Come, let's go check out the gift shop, see what interesting things we can find. This episode of Welcome to Oregon was researched, written, and narrated by me, Marcus Axford. Additional staff includes Jessica Axford, Leah Palmerai, and John Palmerai. If you like our show, you should check out our website. It's the central hub for all that we do here, including a feed for the podcast and various articles on camps, state parks, restaurants, and more. We aren't Yelp. We just want to help people on their own adventures around the state. 
We also have our Oregon resource directory, which has a growing list of our associates like Finn John from Offbeat Oregon and Zach Ernest from the Statesman Journal's Explore Oregon podcast, basically a place where you can get more information on Oregon and connect with cool people. Just as a side note, we have new projects coming that we will be announcing soon, including a major update to the website itself. I know I've gotten quite behind on that. We also have our social media links on our contact section for further interaction. Check us out at www.welcometooregon.net. And if you want more interaction, you can also join our new Discord server, which the link to that is also on our website. I hope you enjoyed today's episode as much as I loved writing it. And until next time, thanks for listening.